Well, good morning, church family. Uh, Four times per year, our church sets aside its regular worship service in order to devote itself wholly to the observance of the Lord's Supper. And most of you have been here for past observances, but every quarter we also have a few people uh, that have never been with us for a Lord's Supper observance before. And so for their sakes, I always like to begin these times by answering a few questions about the Lord's Supper. First question is very simple. What is it? What is the Lord's Supper or communion? Well, very simply, uh, the Lord's Supper is a tradition instituted by Christ himself for the local church. And this tradition involves taking a little bit of bread, which represents the body of Christ, then a little bit of grape juice, which represents his blood, and partaking of these elements together as a church family. And Christ established this tradition because he knows that we are prone to forgetfulness. It's easy for us to forget who Christ is, why he came, what he accomplished during his earthly ministry, and what it all means for us today. Or at least if we don't forget about it, it's easy for us to push these things to the margins of life. And so Christ instituted this supper to bring the gospel back front and center, to bring him back front and center in the life of the local church. As we take hold of that bread, we remember how the Son of God took on human flesh. We remember how his body was broken for our sakes. And as we take hold of that cup, we remember Christ's blood and how it was poured out for us. As we put each of these elements into our body, we remember our spiritual union with Christ. See, the moment we came to Christ in faith and repentance, a real spiritual bond was forged between us and Christ, such that he is now in us. And we are in him. And as we ingest these elements, we're reminded of that spiritual reality. And then as we partake of these elements together as a church family, we're also reminded of the spiritual union that exists between us as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're reminded that there is much more that we have in common than that which we have differently This is so important, especially in these times. We live in a very tumultuous era. There are so many things that could tear us apart. Political differences, social differences, and more. By partaking of the Lord's Supper together, we're reminded that we share Christ in common. That's the most important thing. Now, as far as the question of who is permitted to partake of the Lord's Supper, the answer to that is, Um, is found in the meaning of the supper itself. So this is the Lord's Supper. It's for those who are in the Lord. And so if you are here today and you have responded to the gospel of Christ in faith and repentance, if you've been baptized or at least have committed yourself to baptism, if you have identified with a sound local church, then we encourage you to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. However, if you are still considering the claims of Christ, and don't yet count yourself among his disciples, then we would encourage you to simply observe today while the disciples of Christ partake. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it is spiritually advantageous for you not to partake if you've not yet closed with Christ. Scriptures say, better to let the elements pass by than to partake as a hypocrite, 
claiming to be one of Christ's disciples when you know that you are not. But regardless today, whether you're going to partake of the uh, bread and the grape juice or whether you will not be, we want you to know we are thrilled that you're here today. We think this, this whole service will be spiritually profitable for you. And if you've not yet closed with Christ, I hope that God will use this service as, as one more step in that journey toward you embracing Him in saving faith. Perhaps even today you will want to receive Christ in faith as His disciples receive the elements of bread and juice. Then one more question this morning. Uh, how will we be partaking of the supper? Well, when you entered the building today, hopefully you saw that table out in the hallway with all of the individually wrapped communion packets. They look like this. I'm going to ask you to hang on to this for the duration of the worship service. And if you mean to partake today but you forgot to grab this, that's okay. You can exit the auditorium right now, pick one up, and uh, come right back. No big deal. But I'm going to ask you to hang on to this for the duration of the worship service. We're going to partake of the elements as the climax of our morning together. We'll start with the bread. We'll peel back that clear wrapper, access the bread. I'll say a few words. I'll pray. The instruments will play. And then together we will partake. And then we'll follow the same process for the juice. Um, We'll take it out. We will remove that second wrapper. I'll say a few words. I'll pray. The instrumentalist will play. And then in unison, we will drink from the cup. If all of that was a bit confusing, then I'll leave it with this. Just follow my lead this morning, and everything will go smoothly. And then finally, regarding the feel of this morning's service, I like to refer to Lord's Supper observances as solemn celebrations. So there is some solemnity in this service. After all, it's a memorial service. We are remembering the death of our Lord. But there's also a celebratory element to it because we understand that the death of Christ was the act which secured our redemption. And so we mourn the the loss of our Lord, his unjust suffering and death, but we also celebrate the fact that he was willing to do it for our sakes. And I hope that as the service progresses this morning, you will feel both elements. You will will feel the the somber elements. tone of the music and the the message, but I hope you'll also feel joy as you remember what Christ has done. Well, as we prepare for the service this morning, I'm going to ask the instrumentalist to play a couple of verses of a communion hymn, and I'll encourage you to either uh, silently pray to God in preparation, or you could read the words of the hymn and offer those as your prayer this morning. to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 32 to 42 together. The setting for this passage is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, this garden was located at the base of the Mount of Olives just outside the city of Jerusalem. And this was a favorite place for Jesus and his disciples. It was a nice, quiet getaway Uh, There was shade from all of the olive trees. And so from time to time, they would would go there together. 
And here in today's text, Jesus and his disciples are back in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a Thursday night, and he and his disciples have spent the entire day together. That evening, they had enjoyed a feast. It was a Passover feast. And then Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper. After that, Jesus spent some time teaching his disciples. And now the teachings are done. They have left that upper room in Jerusalem. They've departed from the city. They've gone into the Garden of Gethsemane. It's been a long day for all of them. They are very tired. It is well after dark. So as they arrive in the garden, you see verse 20, or excuse me, verse 32, Jesus encourages his disciples to get some rest. But then verse 33, he takes three of the disciples, the closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he wants them to stay up with him as they go a little deeper into the garden. Now, second part of verse 33 As Jesus is now alone in the Garden of Gethsemane after dark with these three disciples, we see that his countenance completely changes. The text says he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. That means that suddenly Jesus was overcome with spiritual anguish. And then he communicates this to his disciples. Verse 34, he says, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. And so there in the garden on that Thursday night, alone with his disciples, Jesus was suddenly hit with a level of dread that he had never experienced before. And his disciples had never seen this before either. He says that what he was experiencing was so intense that 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 Feeling itself could be enough to kill him. He says, my soul is hurting to the point of death. Verse 35 says that he was so overwhelmed, he even fell to the ground or collapsed to the ground. Luke's account of this says that Jesus was also sweating profusely. And it also says this, quote, his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, Luke could be speaking in figurative terms here, or he could be describing an actual medical condition known as hematidrosis. And what happens in some people is that they can become so completely overwhelmed by stress and dread and all of that, that they can actually burst the capillaries under their skin. And then the blood will come out through the pores as they sweat. So Jesus could have been literally so upset in the Garden of Gethsemane that he was experiencing this medical condition and the blood was coming from his, the pores of his body. Now, what was causing this kind of distress? Well, the answer to that question is found in Jesus' prayer. Look at verses 35 and 36. It says, as he is there collapsed on the ground, sweating profusely, he prays that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. 
In verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. Jesus is drawing upon an Old Testament analogy here. You see, in the Old Testament scriptures, God's righteous judgments against sin are sometimes pictured as a a frothing cup of strong drink. Listen, for example, to Psalm 60, verse 3. It says, You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink and made us stagger. In Psalm 75, verse 8, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup of foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Or Isaiah 51, verse 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So we have all of these Old Testament passages speaking of God's God's wrath, His judgments towards sin as this, this cup of strong drink. And now Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is praying, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. You see, this is what Jesus was dreading in the garden that night. He was dreading the thought of the righteous judgment of God being poured out in its fullest upon him. He wasn't dreading this because of any sins that he had committed. Remember, he was the sinless son of God. never committed a sin in his life. But when he went to the cross, he was going to to accept on his shoulders the sins of all of us. And this is what he was dreading. He was dreading that moment when he would offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for you and me. Accepting upon himself all of the weight of God's just judgments against sin. Now, of course, Jesus knew this event was coming his whole life. He'd even taught his disciples that it was the whole purpose of his coming. Why would the eternal Son of God take on human flesh? Well, precisely so that he could die for men. But you see, it was always far in the distance. Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knows that the time is imminent. Judas Iscariot has already gone out to betray Jesus. He's already accepted those 30 pieces of silver. The guards are now coming. They're going to meet Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on this night. It's just moments away now. Jesus knows this. And as he contemplates all that is about to happen to him, it's almost more than he can bear. The thought that he is about to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. For humanity causes him to drop to the ground, to sweat profusely, and to to almost beg God to let this cup pass. See, friends, our salvation cost us nothing. All we had to do was repent and believe in Jesus. But look at what it cost our Lord. It cost him sorrow, dread, 
terror? My friends, I hope that seeing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane gives you a new loathing for sin. I love this quote from the Puritan minister, Matthew Henry. He writes, quote, Can we ever entertain a favorable or so much as a slight thought of sin when we see what impression our sin made on the Lord Jesus? Shall that sit lightly upon our souls that sat so heavily upon his? Was Christ in such agony for our sins, and shall we never be in agony about them? Friends, how can we ever take a casual look at sin again after seeing Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane? I trust that it also gives us a new resolve to fight against our indwelling sin. Again, Matthew Henry, quote, It becomes us to be exceedingly sorrowful for sin because Christ was so. And never to make a mock at all. If Christ thus suffered for sin, let us arm ourselves with the same mind. He's saying there, if Christ had to endure this because of our sin, should we not be willing now to wage war against the remaining sin in our lives? But then finally, I hope this also serves to comfort you when you are tempted to despair over your sins. Some of us were fortunate to come to Christ very early in life, so we didn't bring a whole lot of baggage with us into our Christian lives. But there are others who came to Christ very late in life. And it could be that you have this weight of guilt that you feel because of a whole life lived apart from God. and You have so many things that just cause you great grief about that former life. My friends, when you are tempted to despair over your past, just look at Christ. He would not have you wallowing in guilt and shame over your past sins. Christ has taken that shame for you. He took the guilt of it. He took the pain of it on his shoulders. He wants to be your substitute, taking all of that from you so that you can live in the freedom of forgiveness. So when you look at Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, yes, have a loathing for sin, have a a resolve to fight sin, but do not plunge yourself under the weight of despair for your sin. See that Christ did that for you. Stand straight and tall in the freedom of being forgiven. Friends, as we consider what Christ has done for us, all the glories of it, let us sing about it together now. So the Garden of Gethsemane teaches us that Christ dreaded the cross, but then in the second part of verse 36, we learn that it also teaches us that Christ was resolved to go to the cross. Look again at Jesus' prayer. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. But then he adds, Yet, not what I will, but what you will. See, in his human nature, our Lord Jesus wanted to avoid the suffering of the cross. It was an overwhelming thought to him that he should should bear the Father's judgments, that he should be separated from God. These are things he had never known before. And yet we also see his absolute submissiveness to his Father's will. 
We see his willingness to go to be that atoning sacrifice for us. He says, if it is possible, remove this cup, yet not what I will, which yours, your will be done. He says, if it is possible, let it pass. But Christ knew it was not possible. There was no other way for our redemption to be secured other than by this. The Son of God had to offer himself in substitution for us. He had to come. He had to endure the cross. Our Lord was ready to go because he knew it was the only way. My friends, I hope you've not lost the wonder of that fact. Think of what our Lord Jesus gave up in accepting this task. From all eternity, he had been in the glorious presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit, enjoying this perfect fellowship and love. Before the incarnation, he was beyond pain, beyond the experience of death. No one could harm him. He willingly gave it all up, took on human flesh, robed his glory in humanity. And he came and he endured everything that you and I have to in life. He endured poverty, sickness, mistreatment from others. And then finally he went to the cross where he literally experienced hell for us. That's what he was describing when he said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He accepted that for you. That should make us all feel very grateful for Christ. Thank you, God, for sending your Son for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to go. It should humble us, too. We ought to be thinking, who are we that the Son of God should have such regard for us? We've done nothing to deserve this kind of love. And yet he chose to come to our rescue. He chose to love us unto death. It's a humbling thought. Friends, it should also motivate us to voluntarily and without need for coercion devote ourselves to his cause. He gave his very life for us. Should we not be willing to give of ourselves for him, for the furtherance of his mission? Should we not desire to spend our lives spreading the fame of his name, given the greatness of his person and work? Does he not deserve all the love that we can give to him in return for the love he has shown to us? As we think about these matters, let us sing another hymn. So the Garden of Gethsemane shows us that Christ dreaded the cross. It shows us that he was resolved to go to the cross. And now we look at verses 37 to 41. Look what it says here. And he, Jesus, came and found them, the disciples, sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. 
The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And now in walks Judas. What an incredible contrast we see here between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus understands the significance of this moment. His disciples do not. He stays up to spiritually prepare himself for what's about to come. His disciples catch up on sleep. And these, by the way, are the best disciples that Jesus has. This is Peter, James, and John. They're among the twelve, and they are his closest. And yet not even these men can stay up and pray. Praying for Jesus, praying for themselves as they head into these very dark hours. Friends, what becomes clear in this passage is that Jesus truly was the only person who could be the Messiah. He was unique in his person. Uh, Here in this text, he calls himself the Son of Man. He was also Son of God. Two natures united together in the one person. Never in all human history had there been anyone like that. Never will there be someone like that again. Absolutely unique. But we also see him unique in his resolve. Jesus was ready, willing, and able to go, fully cognizant of the need for him to go and be an atoning sacrifice. There was nobody else like this. Nobody else could even stay awake to pray for him as he went about this great task. Nobody else like Jesus. Nobody with the kind of resolve that Jesus demonstrated. Not even Adam in the Garden of Eden could resist the temptation to take that forbidden fruit in his state of innocency. And here we find Jesus resisting the devil's temptations his whole life and refusing to take himself off the cross when finally up, even as people are taunting him, telling him to let himself down if he is truly the Son of God. Jesus dreaded the cross, but he was resolved to go to the cross, and he is the only one who could ever fulfill that task. My friends, to be a human post-fall is to be in a state of spiritual lethargy. We don't understand the seriousness of the times that we're living in. We are unable to rouse ourselves to do any spiritual good. To be a human post-fall is also to be in desperate need of Christ seeing that he alone was able to merit perfect righteousness. He alone was willing to offer himself in sacrifice for sins. Only he was perfectly submissive to his Father's will. None of us has ever been, could ever be. This is why it's incumbent upon us all to put our full faith and trust in Christ seeing our spiritual need, and seeing His uniqueness to meet our need. We should repent of our own ways and trust fully in Him, His person, His work. We also need to be regularly reminded of the uniqueness of Jesus and of the greatness of what He has done for us by observing the Lord's Supper. This is what brings us to the table today. Just before we partake together, let's sing one final song expressing our need of Christ. Let's take our communion elements out together.
Let's peel back that clear plastic cover and take out the bread. The scriptures tell us that on the night in which our Lord was betrayed, he first took bread and then he gave thanks. So allow me to offer a prayer of thanks to God for this bread. Then the instrumentalists will play so that we can all engage in a moment of silent prayer. And then we'll partake of the element together. So Lord, we do come to you now with such gratitude for what you have done for us. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son to live among us, to go to the cross, to allow his body to be broken for our sakes. We thank you for the redemption that is ours because of his substitutionary sacrifice. Lord, help us always to be worthy of that sacrifice. As we partake of this bread, remind us of the spiritual union that we enjoy with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And Jesus broke the bread and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then the scriptures say, That in the same way, Jesus took the cup also, and he again gave thanks. Allow me to give thanks for the cup before us. Lord, we do give you our thanks for the blood of your son Jesus, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Help us, Lord to be worthy of his shed blood. Help us to wage war against the remaining sin in our lives. Help us to live lives of gratitude for you, for all that you have done for us. As we drink from from the cup before us, Lord, help us to be reminded once more of the spiritual bond we have with you because of your Son and also with one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus lifted the cup and said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then finally, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my kingdom. And so all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Matt, conclude our time with another song. <laughs> 